Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. I'm your host, Luke Prague. Today I'll be speaking with Mark Van Steenwick, leader of a nonviolent Christian community in Minneapolis, Minnesota. If you were actually just talking to God the other day, um, I would expect you to be trembling a little bit, not just willy-nilly, hey, I had a conversation with the divine source of all existence the other day. Mark was a kind of mentor to me during the last year of the Christian part of my life. I had just moved from a small town to Minneapolis, so I started church shopping. I was interested in something called emergent Christianity, and his little community called Missio Dei came up on a Google search for emergent church Minneapolis. I visited one of their Sunday gatherings and was really impressed with the community, the love, the honesty, and the education I found in the leaders of Missio Dei. So I joined up and became friends with Mark and some of the other members of Missio Dei. Mark was also there when I lost my Christian faith. I cried out to him for help because I really didn't want to lose my faith. He tried to encourage me, but in the end he couldn't give me any reasons to think that Yahweh was more likely to exist than Zeus or Allah. But of course I still really respect and enjoy Mark, and it was a pleasure to interview him for this show. Here's my interview with Mark Van Steenwick. Mark Van Steenwick is the leader of an intentional community in Minneapolis called Missio Dei, which means Mission of God, and he's considered one of the leaders of the new monasticism movement in America. He's also the editor of The Jesus Manifesto, a radical Christian webzine you can read at jesusmanifesto.com. A few years ago, when I was still a Christian and I met Mark, and I was so impressed with his character and vision that I joined Monsieur Day and spent as much time as I could just asking him what he thought about this and what he thought about that. So, Mark, it's a tremendous pleasure to be doing that again. Welcome to the show. It's good to be here, Luke. <laughs> First, Mark, um, would you share with us what your faith journey has been? Well, uh, that's a big question. I think most of my journey has been uh, a search to make sense of the world, as I understood it. And I, I have to start with a, a recognition that one of the things that's driven me is um, the, the ugliness of the world and wanting to see um, beauty in its place. And so I think... You know, I could start my faith journey by talking about religion, but for me it really begins in the sort of things I'd read as a child. Um, I read lots of um, mythology, but then also lots of fantasy books, and I always was um, struck by the poetry and the meaning of these different stories, um, these beautiful stories, you know, you know, things like Lord of the Rings and C.S. Lewis's Narnia books, but then also... Um, Norse mythology and Greek myths that had a sort of poetry in contrast to the world we lived in. And I felt this sense of longing and ache, aching for something beyond this world. Um, and for a long time, I just assumed that there was nothing like that in this world, and I just had to live in perpetual disappointment. But then uh, I think um, as I got older, I kind of began to realize that there might be more to it. And, you know, I think I had my first whiffs of of it when I began to um, explore this Christianity thing. And, and my parents weren't um, all that Christian. My mom, um, William, was never religious, and my father um, was Mormon, but it never meant much or anything. But as I began to explore it and, and find out more about it, 
Um, first off, I found a lot of ugliness in Christianity, but there's something beautiful about this Jesus dude, um, um, the sacrificial life, the one who um, bridges um, the divine and the human, the one who shows us who God is and what God looks like. Um, but him kind of coming in kind of this very ugly way in the midst of human brokenness and dying a violent death, but somehow showing what it means to be um, both human but also show us the way to God, that just captivated me. And there's something about that that kind of struck me about with this feeling of, of profound beauty in the midst of ugliness that I think I've been kind of looking for. And so as I began to explore that, I realized that to follow him, I'd have to kind of buck against Christianity as usual and just, you know, follow in his footsteps. And that led me eventually to starting an intentional community um, with some friends, um, just explore what would it actually look like if a group of people committed to trying to live out the life that Jesus called us to, um, rather than what would it look like for a church to try to get people to be Christian. Um, so, um, so that that kind of drove me, and it still drives me to this, to this day. Of, of I really feel like I'm trying to see the world as Jesus saw and sees the world. Um, so the question for me is, you know, like there's that old kind of saying, evangelical saying that some people still wear on their bracelets: that WWJD, what would Jesus do? To me, the more important question is. Um, what would Jesus would would Jesus do through me, or what is Jesus doing through me, or how can I see the world as Jesus sees the world, or some sort of question like that, assuming that I can see things the way He saw things and kind of be captivated by His vision of beauty, which He called the kingdom of God. So that's that's a short but long version of my faith journey, depending um, <laughs> on how you look at it. Well, Mark, you're not the typical Christian, whatever that would mean. I'm sure it's not you. Um, and <laughs> probably probably not the... Yeah, I do mean that as a compliment, genuinely. Um, and not really the kind of Christian that is described by people like Richard Dawkins, either. Um, how would you describe your Christian self? Uh, emergent, missional, Anabaptist, postmodern, post-Christian? Any of those apply, and, and what the hell are they? Uh, well, I start, for me, I start with Anabaptists, and, you know, actually, as time goes on, the less, I don't really use the word Christian anymore, but I don't replace it with some sort of generic sense of Jesus follower. I actually start usually with Anabaptist, which are those people like the Amish, the Mennonites, um, because when I hear their story, um, there's something, again, beautiful about their story. I tend to resonate with those people who, who in their time, seem to really be honestly um, engaging this Jesus story the same way I have. So, um, you know, St. Francis of Assisi uh, is a good example. Someone tried to, um, he wanted to see the beauty in the world by embracing the poor and becoming poor and not through um, how his society saw that. So in some ways I'm Franciscan um, and I'm inspired by him, but the um, but then later on the Anabaptists come about and that's who I resonate most with. Um, they refused to link their faith in Christ with power and political power. And so they were really rather, you know, willing to die before they'd um, kind of baptize the sort of naked power and warfare that the state would wage and tie in with their Christianity. And so um, they saw faith as um, centering on Jesus' way of peace, simplicity, hospitality, um, 
those sorts of things. So I think of myself as Anabaptist first, with a little bit of Franciscan thrown in. Um, but also missional. If by missional I mean God is doing things in the world and he calls us, um, his people, to join him in that. that that's an invitation. I call myself that. <laughs> I call myself um, post-Christian in some ways. I think this is an exciting time in the West to be a Christian because Christianity is, as a institutional form is slowly dying. And I say amen to that because <laughs> Christianity is, was never meant to be dominant. It was always meant to be fringe and marginal so that it could speak prophetically to call people to a different way. And when that way is encoded with power um, and money and empire, um, then it just ruins all the beauty of it and it loses, loses what it means. So then you always see these people like Francis and Claire of Assisi and the Anabaptists and other movements throughout history um, trying to regain a prophetic voice that embraces a way that's beautiful um, but their beautiful way usually is humble and simple and uh, poor and sometimes painful. So to me, even though um, I can't really compare myself to them because it hasn't really gotten bad for me like it's been for them, <laughs> my hope and our community's hope is to be to follow in that sort of posture, recognizing that our faith needs to to not link itself to the ugly side of, um, of American global empire and the Christendom that's tied to that, but one that, like Jesus, goes to the margins. So most marginal movements like that that try to be prophetic in a nonviolent way, that's simple, I find myself resonating with. Hmm. What do you think of the term emergence? I think it's become useless. Um, I think it, if it, it generically just means that there's something new happening. Um that's different than before, that's coming out of what exists now, but it's different. I mean, that's kind of the idea, but I think basically what it, it really means is there's permission that wasn't there before, that people can play around with stuff, that they don't have to accept Christianity as they received it. Now, there's a good and a downside to that, and I, I think um, I've seen both sides. The good side is, hey, we don't have to be enslaved to our faith anymore, that we can um, try to seek faithfulness in ways that doesn't look like what we've received. But the downside, the bad thing is that that means sometimes we can disrespect the tradition that we've received, that we can be consumeristic about it and kind of build a, you know, it's like looking at faith as a salad bar and, you know, choosing croutons and bacon bits and, you know, salad pieces to create our own super salad of faith. But often it's based on our own consumer tastes and whims. And every religion, every world religion, at some level has the assumption in it that you have to submit to something bigger than yourself. Um, and so when you become a salad bar Christian, um, you're basically putting yourself above anything that you have to submit to. And then that faith can only be as big as you are. Um, and that isn't very ennobling or inspiring usually, hmm. unless you happen to be someone like, you know, Jesus Christ, <laughs> and I'm not him, so I need something bigger than me. So the emerging church thing tends towards consumer mentalities, um, but at the same time, people have been really creative in finding new ways of explaining and understanding and embracing their faith that are new, that are beautiful, but it's a crapshoot, some good, some bad, 
I think that fits me, but in my mind, I'm trying to move deeper into uh, submission into different traditions that I think are beautiful, while still trying to maintain some sense of freedom not to be enslaved by it, because it's just tradition. Now, does postmodernism still inform your uh, viewpoint as much as it did when I was uh, in Minneapolis there? I think so. I think, um, for me, there's been some shift. Well, um, two of the big, you know, post ideologies, um, or on ideologies, I guess, depending on how you look at it. Postmodernism tries to understand what it means, um, usually tends to deal with issues of truth and how one understands certainty and, um, kind of re-injecting, um, a high degree of subjectivity into most areas of human knowing. And I still think I hold on to that, but to me, the more interesting um, area of thinking is coming more from post-colonialism, which is more interested not just in truth claims, but in how one uses power. And we know that historically, the one who determines the truth is usually the one that has power. And so if you're really going to start being post-modern and start trying to wonder about what's true and how one comes to truth, you also have to dismantle the systems of power and and who has the right to claim what's true. Um, and so for both, for me, both inform my thinking. I'm trying to come to this place where you're, there's no naive sense that you've got um, a handhold on faith based on some sort of misguided notion of certainty, that my faith isn't based on some sort of intellectual certainty. It's based more on the sort of relational certainty where you, you know that you're loved which is a different sort of human knowing. And to me, postmodernism moves you in a direction to where you can make the claims about relationship kind of levels, like the subjective levels of knowing and certainty. Um, but it's more squeamish about saying this um, propositional statement is true for all people, the same everywhere. But truth is just much more elusive than that. Um, but if we're going to do that at the same time, if we, if we can't make those claims about something being true everywhere because that's usually um, justification for wielding power um, and oppressing people. So we also have to we have to look at things from both sides, power and truth, and how they're both wielded to oppress people in their thinking and in their lives. Hmm. So, Well, tell us more about Missy O'Day. Who is Missy O'Day and what are you guys doing? We started as an experiment. We're still kind of experimental in the sense that we've given ourselves freedom to explore and not be um, too structured. But I, I think we're kind of moving into a phase where things are becoming more. Um, there's a sense of continuity and in, in our own traditions forming, um, so that you know, any given six months from now, we'll probably still be kind of the same. And what this year day is is we're, we're Mennonite. We're um, affiliated with the Mennonite Church, which is an Anabaptist group. They're the ones that refused to uh, link their Christianity to the state during the Reformation. Um, and uh, so for us, that means our core convictions are usually centered around nonviolence, um, uh, simplicity, prayer, and the practice of hospitality. And for us, hospitality isn't simply kind of the the soup kitchen notion of hospitality, where it's a breaking bread. So it's the sort of way of breaking bread that most people, when they are fortunate enough to eat around a table, uh, we do that, but we include the stranger into that sort of practice as much as possible, um, this, someone who's in transition or struggling. Um, but it also means that um, we will take people in to kind of live with us to hopefully transition into a different um, 
life. And usually, in the case um, with some of our friends that have come into our homes, they've just kind of stuck around or they have no intention of going anywhere because um, one man who lives with us, Michael, he, for him, um, he's lived on the streets an awful lot. He's in his 50s now, and he doesn't really have any other family anymore, so we're kind of it. So to me, that's the end goal of Monsieur Day is to be a, kind of a sort of family um, that lives by a set of convictions and ideals. Now, not everyone's going to stick around forever, um, so it's always a lot of transition, people coming in and out. And so we try to make the best of the time we have with people. Um, so in some sense, we're also like a school. Like I, We focus a lot on um, equipping people to um, follow in the footsteps of Jesus as much as they can wherever they go. Um, so we, um, on Sunday nights, um, we gather together and we, you know, we'll look at the scriptures and ask the awkward questions that the scripture raises and ask how can we live this stuff out instead of just talking about it. So a lot of what we do is around meals, um, engaging conversations around these big ideas that Jesus brings up and come up in scripture. Um, we also do uh, meals out on the street and this thing we call the hospitality train, which is uh, loading of food on bicycle trailers and bringing it out to this gravel lot in the neighborhood and breaking bread out there. And it's not just feeding people that are hungry and having them go. We, they have to eat right there because we don't have disposable stuff, and we meet people from all over the neighborhood. And we do this in the context of two households where there's um, uh, 14 of us living between two houses and then some other friends that live in the area and people that are always kind of coming and going that are kind of in the orbit of our community. Um, trying to be a safe place for people to ask questions and explore their faith but not being squeamish about telling them what Jesus says about stuff and always inviting them hospitably rather than coercively to consider um, taking what Jesus says to heart. So we've had people that are used to beating the crap out of people to solve their problems. We've challenged them to think about the ways of nonviolence. And one of one gentleman who <laughs> has had problems beating people up um, lives with us now and is trying to learn what it means to embrace the way of peace of Jesus um so um it's just kind of just living in intentional community like we do things on purpose for the sake of us becoming more like Christ, but always being open to people coming and going, being open handed, um, sharing life with each other, um, and learning things along the way. So that's basically what Monsieur Day is. Wow. Um now you can be an apprentice, is that I see that recently? Yeah, we're, we're still toying with that. The way we've been doing it is people, having people that are interested in starting a community like ours come and just learning, having a time of learning for either like three months or nine months. Um, but what we're going to do is, you know, we've realized that that process that we've been doing with those sorts of people coming with a high degree of intentional learning, um, we'll, we're, we're going to try to do that with everyone new who comes in having a kind of a much more of a learning posture so that when you come in, you don't just move in and start jumping in, that there's going to be a, a more of a learning process where um, people that are newer, we'd meet with them, read some some ideas and thoughts. Um, some of the writings of Dorothy Day, um, The Little Flowers of Francis of Assisi, um, books on Franciscan prayer, just things like that that are a little more um, study-ish than we normally would engage in in our community. Um, we're probably going to have everyone do that, but we'll always have like a special spot open for someone who's coming specifically 
to learn so that they can try to think of how they can do community somewhere else. So right now we have a young woman named Sarah um, who, whose intention is to go back um, to Orlando, Florida at some point to start a community um, with some of her friends there. And to me, the only way you can, the best way to learn is by immersion, by jumping into a way of life that you want, mm-hmm. but with the creativity and freedom to explore how you can do that in a different way, in a different context. So that's kind of what we're going for. Mm. Well, I, I hope we see uh, all kinds of nonviolent communities popping up all over the place. That would make me very happy. Yeah. <laughs> there are too few. I mean, people like the idea of pacifism or something as a abstract thing. I've met military personnel that say, yeah, I'm a pacifist. Um, and, and I don't think people take that seriously as a way of life, a commitment that's an active thing rather than just a passive thing. So for us, one of the big things in our community, and I think it takes communities and groups to do this, is embody alternatives to war. Um, and that permeates not only just saying no to war, but like being involved in um, reconciliation work between people who have done damage to one another, um, restorative justice programs around the country, um, bringing healing to people who are just have a lot of pain and struggle. Um, it's all sorts of different levels. And protest, I mean protest, you can always throw anti-war protest in there too. Yeah, nonviolence is not really something where, you know, we just happen to not be fighting right now. It really takes a huge change in the way that we think and, and interact with other people and it takes a lot of maintenance and work and a lot of that is, is the stuff that you're doing through with Missy O'Day. Yeah, we're crying and I, there's, there's some great examples throughout history of that. Um, Jesus being a good one, but then Gandhi, Dr. King, um, Tay Whitty out of uh, um, New Zealand, who was the turn of the century, um, 18 to 1900s. Um, yeah, there's just been all sorts of examples. Of None of them are cowards. It's just a painful, usually that's a way of martyrdom, but usually uh, it just shows a way different than the cycle of death that the rest of the world tends to follow. Yeah, and the names that you mentioned are some pretty influential people. Uh, Jesus, Gandhi, Matthew, the King. Uh, they, they had some impact with their um, nonviolence, so it might be worth trying, huh? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> You've been talking about this um, being like Jesus and just, um, you know, imitating him and bringing his his mission to the world. Uh, and you've talked about how that might involve um, violence and uh, compassion and hospitality. Um, but there's probably a little there's probably a little more um, in that. What is the throbbing core of the vision that you have for um, the way Jesus would want us to live? Well, that's big. I mean, it's not a simple thing to answer because, I mean, in the Gospels, there's four of them. Um, but I think basically just the willingness to kind of humble oneself. I mean, Jesus is this picture of this, this man, you know. The story is, and I believe it, that Jesus is God in the flesh who humbled himself, entering into creation and going to the lowest parts of creation to redeem all of creation. So... I think we see that lived out and demonstrated any time, at some level, any time someone um, humbles themselves to the point of um, of trying to seek um, healing in the broken places. Um, but I think there can be a way that's more transcendent. I mean, I don't think Jesus is just a role model. Um, Jesus brings actually God's very presence in a very real and transformative way to those broken places. 
Now, if I ask that question of most Christians, what's the core of Christianity, uh, I think most of them would say something about salvation from hell. What is salvation to you? Salvation, I'm pretty sure, includes, like, happy, eternal happiness with God and all that stuff, but I, I think it just flows out of this. There's this picture um, that I like, and, you know, I know a lot of Christians have kind of moved away from this idea of God being a trinity, um, but I still find it beautiful and compelling and true. Um, there's this picture that the, in the ancient Greek, there's this word perichoresis, um, or maybe it's Latin, I think it's Greek, perichoresis meaning um, dancing around. And it's the image of God being um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit engaged in this dance where they um, pour out love for one another forever, right? This is this picture. And um, this is the idea that Jesus, when he calls us into his way of life, he's calling us to dance in this dance of God's dance. So to me, salvation is only a call to go more deeply into the life of God, which is joyous like a dance, which is um, filled with love, you know, self-giving love for one another, like the relationship with the Father, Son, and the Spirit, that we're all called to join in that, pouring out of our life to another and receiving life back and going deep into the heart of God. And to me, yes, salvation because of that, implies moving away from other things that are damaging and take you away from that. But to me, whether or not that's a, uh, like a burning sulfur hell, or it's the hell of being alone and bitter, or broken, or um, filled with sorrow and mourning, and those are all sorts of things that, in that state, being called to enter more deeply into the life of God, we're being saved from those things. But it's not saved from, it's being saved towards the fullness of life that God has for us. Um, so I, I don't usually, you know, the only time Jesus talks about hell is to scare religiously um, uptight and mean people. And so um, I just don't find that a very compelling or helpful image just to use willy-nilly, except for maybe if someone's just uh, a spiritual asshole. I don't know how it's better to put that. It's not something you should just whip out. Um, Jesus usually called people towards life, and that's, I think, the focus that we should have. So for you, it seems like it's more salvation is more of a personal uh, relationship growth thing rather than a um, one day saying, Christ Jesus, I assent to the proposition that you were crucified for my sins and rose from the dead kind of thing. Yeah, and, and I'd be just careful to make sure that, uh, you know, relationship is a word that, like evangelicals and other Christians we use to kind of say, hey, I'm friends with God, and it doesn't necessarily mean much. Um, to me, it's a rela- relationship of a more maybe mystical um, or um, kind of whole life altering sort. I mean, there's this um, idea that I think Rudolf Otto, who was an uh, anthropologist of religion, um, kind of coined this term numinous, uh, which is this sense of where you're confronted by the terror of of God as a holy other terror in a kind of an awe-inspiring sense, not the scary sense, where you're 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 meeting this this presence that actually changes all the the rules for what it means to live. <laughs> and to me, I'm more interested in that sort of relationship of 
a presence or a relationship that actually shifts the whole understanding of what it means to be alive and what it means to have relationship. Not just to add um, quick, you know, Jesus is now your friend on Facebook kind of level of friendship that most Christians seem to be content with in their relationship with God. That you can send a friend request to God when times are tough. Um, I know that's really trite, and I'm kind of being ridiculous. And I know most Christians don't have such a, uh, a lame view of God, but sometimes I wonder when they just throw out the word relationship, um, they're not really coming to terms with the profound implications of actually having an actual relationship with the divine. That's not just like something that you throw out casually or say even lightly. Like, oh, I was talking to God the other day. Like that sort of language is, that's the sort of language we use just for anyone. <laughs> if you were actually just talking to God the other day, um, I would expect you to be trembling a little bit, not just willy-nilly, hey, I had a conversation with the divine source of all existence the other day. <laughs> well, Mark, one of the many reasons that I wanted to interview you was because if I can't uh, convince everybody to become cold, rational atheists, I would at least like to see them um, not be Rick Warren-type Christians, but maybe be more um, nonviolent, <laughs> missional, Mark Van Steenwick Christians. <laughs> so... Um, if Christians have listened to this show and found what you've said compelling, what resources would you recommend that they go to first? Well, I think you can be some help from reading. Um, some of the it's just a few books that I think are good just to look into. You know, I always challenge people to actually just read through the Gospel of Luke, assuming that they have never read it before. And Christians always take Scripture for granted because they don't think it can challenge them anymore because they're used to thinking of Scripture as something that's status quo, which is not, it's a revolutionary text. So that, I also think it's good to read um, Little Flowers of St. Francis, which I mentioned earlier, or Dorothy Day's Loaves and Fishes. Both those books are just give a very radical take on what it means to follow in Jesus' footsteps. Other than that, I think, you know, if someone's really interested, they should find communities that are living this sort of stuff out as best as they can and go and try to learn because there's no you can read a book and then think that because you gave mental assent to something that you're somehow um, one of those sorts of people that cares about that sort of thing and that changed your life there's actually a website called communityofcommunities.us that has a list of intentional communities that are of a similar sort as Missio Day and people might be able to find a community on that near them that they could check out and you know there's odds are maybe it won't be good or maybe it will be it's always a it's always a struggle, but just keep searching. Never get satisfied. Don't give up, but always try to follow Jesus as best as one can. And then um, if you find someone who seems to have that spark of Christ-likeness, someone who's so loving that they're pouring themselves out, um, just hang around with them a lot. I think that's probably been one of the best things that I've done in my life. And finally, Mark, I'd love to hear what you would say um, to atheists out there Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Here's the thing. Um, we've had people that want to be a part of our community that aren't Christian, and um, we have a high degree of acceptance, and we think it's actually a good thing to pursue that because, you know, when you're reading about Jesus and his calling of his disciples, you don't really ever know where his disciples are coming from. 
and you don't see them having to assign some sort of document attesting to their belief in his divinity or even the acknowledging um, the divinity of Yahweh. I mean, you can assume that they all worship Yahweh, but you don't ever really know. They're all in different places. All he does is say, come and follow. And I think most atheists that I've met um, tend to think there's something worthwhile about Jesus um, if they can just get past how people have treated him. Like So they might find worship of Christ distasteful, but they might see something beautiful in his way of life. And I'm a firm believer that um, you have to start somewhere. And so my challenge or encouragement to all atheists who might be listening is if there's anything beautiful in the way of Christ, I'll just follow in that example. Um, and if you don't have to worry about <laughs> that meaning that somehow you have to make faith claims about Jesus. But my assumption is that as you begin to follow in some footsteps, you begin to see things as they see things. Um, and, you know, my secret desires for all atheists everywhere to worship Jesus <laughs> are more likely to be accomplished as opposed to people following his footsteps and begin to see as he sees. But if my dreams of atheists everywhere turning to worship Jesus is thwarted, then, hey, there's a bunch of atheists who follow the nonviolent way of Christ because of its own truth and beauty. Um, that is a, that's still worthwhile, too. So follow in his footsteps if there's anything beautiful about him. Um, it doesn't matter what you think about the man as far as his claims to divinity or others' claims of this divinity. It's still a way of life that people can fall into. That's beautiful. That's great. Uh, I think I would agree with a lot of that. Um, there's, yeah. there's a lot of beauty and a lot of um, revolutionary power in certain interpretations of Jesus that atheists often are really quick to overlook because they want to be judgmental of the way that Christendom has handled its power. Um, and so they just kind of want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah, there's a, I've just been reading a great book that I think um, would give a more palatable view of religious nonviolence in particular to someone who's an atheist. It's um, Mark, Mark Kurlansky. I think he wrote a, a history of salt or something like that. That was a book uh, that started, but he wrote a, a history of nonviolence that tends to follow the Western course of history, starting with um, Christ um, and how um, nonviolence um, was kind of central to Christian faith and practice early on and has been at different points in history. But often that loses ground to when Christians get power. And, I think it, and, and then I find all the pitfalls of why someone would hate Christianity. <laughs> yeah. But also some of the good times when people have um, regained the sense of what Christ calls them to. And this shows a beautiful thing. Sometimes people like Gandhi. Gandhi was inspired by Tolstoy and Christ, and he never claimed to follow Jesus um, in a um, religious sense exactly. Um, not at least in the way that Christians can look at it. But he was so captivated by Christ that he followed in that footsteps. And to me, you know, if, he, if he were an atheist or not, he probably would still have been able to accomplish what he did. Um, so there's still beauty in the way of Christ, even if it's um, not focused ultimately on worship of God. And that's not to say that that's an okay thing. Like, in my mind, um, again, you can't really enter into that full dance that I talked about earlier. Um, if you strip Christ kind of a pragmatic level, but I still believe that if you start there, it gives you a different way of seeing the world that's beautiful in and of itself. It's just kind of like the Happy Meal version. 
It's not quite the full meal deal. <laughs> well, this has been wonderful, Mark. Um, I appreciate you sharing your your vision with us. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, it's good to talk to you again. And that was my interview with Mark Van Steenwick. Check out the podcast notes at commonsenseatheism.com for links to his website and more. Now I'd like to introduce a new part of the show called Myths Atheists Share. Many Christians spread untrue myths to support their cause. They may say that Darwin converted to Christianity on his deathbed, or that NASA computers, in calculating the positions of the planets, found a missing day corresponding to the long day of Joshua 10 and Hezekiah's sundial movement of 2 Kings 20. Of course, these are false. But some atheists also spread myths in support of atheism. In Myths Atheists Share, I'm going to debunk these atheist myths. One popular atheist myth is the idea that Jesus was not worshipped as a god until the Council of Nicaea in 325, or at least not until a century after Jesus' death. This myth got its widest audience when it was asserted by Dan Brown's mega best-selling novel, The Da Vinci Code. But it's simply not true. The Gospel of John, written in 100 CE, or just 70 years after Jesus' death, represents Jesus as God very clearly. Colossians, written 30 to 40 years earlier than John, says that in Christ all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. A few other first century Christian writings refer to Jesus as God too. Perhaps the most important is Philippians, written by Paul in 62 CE, just three decades after Jesus' death, which says that Christ Jesus existed in the form of God. And in fact, many scholars think that this passage, Philippians 2, 5-11, is an even earlier hymn that Paul is quoting. So, there were at least some Christian groups who worshipped Jesus as God within a few decades of his death. Now, whether Jesus ever claimed to be God, or whether his earliest followers worshipped him as a God, we'll probably never know. But the tradition of Jesus as God arose long before the Council of Nicaea, or even the second century, and goes as far back into the past as any surviving Christian writings go. So, that's it for this episode of Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. I hope you enjoyed it. 